0: Way on sabbatical this summer, uh, we've decided uh, the elders to preach through the book of Philippians, and it'll take us through the entire summer. So, what I want to start with today is an overview of the book of Philippians, a sort of a bird's eye view of the whole book. And then next week, uh, the next or I think Harvey, Harvey, Guy comes to preaching next. He'll start digging straight into Philippians chapter one, verse one. Then, okay. So. um an overview of a, of a book, I've never really done this before, at least not as a sermon, um, so how does one do an overview of something? Okay. Well, I, I, I took it to be something like the following, trying to answer the following question. Um, what's the big idea holding this thing together? Okay. So if you're going to do the overview of a biblical book, my guess is you're supposed, to be, you're supposed to present what's the sort of big idea that's holding this book together? What's the purpose? What, what was Paul mainly up to when he wrote the book of Philippians? Now, I'm sure many of us are familiar with uh, Philippians fairly well. It has some of the most quotable verses in all the Bible. So, here's a few that, that you probably know quite well. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's a very familiar verse. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. It comes again in Revelation, but it appears first here in Philippians. Philippians 4.13, one of the verse, verses I uh, memorized as a young disciple, I can do all things through him who gives me strength or who strengthens me. And then Philippians 4.4 4 is a sort of common verse that people uh, re- recite. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So these are very memorable bits and pieces of, of the book of Philippians, but I want to try to show today, make an attempt to show how these different bits and pieces hold together in a coherent theme. So over the past two Sundays, Lee's been teaching on the book of Colossians uh, and about what the local church should be like, what it should be passionate about, what it should be characterized about, and so he went through a lot of different things that uh, Paul lists there in Colossians. But the Colossians letter is not unique in that respect. Almost every letter Paul writes ultimately is a letter to Christians saying, here's the sort of way you should be, okay, calling them to what they were first were called to in Christ, call in to be faithful, and then different themes that come, there's different things that he'll uh, uh, emphasize in those letters, Okay, but overall that's usually the theme, he's calling Christians to be faithful to Christ. So in a similar fashion, I think that uh, Philippians has a similar sort of message, and I think it's worded something like the following, I think Paul's letter to the Philippians is to encourage a body of Christian believers to continue their partnership in the gospel by walking worthy of the gospel. That's not a fancy phrase I came up with, this is Paul's own words that we'll see today in Philippians. So there's a lot of different issues throughout the book of Philippians, as we'll see throughout the summer as we preach through it, uh, that Paul addresses pastoral concerns, personal concerns, but I think undergirding all of the book of Philippians, okay, um, he's primarily concerned the Philippian church would continue to partner in the gospel, okay? Now, I think that's a fairly weird phrase, partner in the gospel or partnership in the gospel. But it actually arises multiple times throughout the letter, but uh, it's often worded differently. Okay, So I want us to see this morning how the various places it comes up, this no- notion of partnership, and how an understanding of it could help us and encourage us to be like the Philippian Church, to partner in the gospel. What does that phrase mean? Okay, Now, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be appealing to some of the Greek today. Now, I, I, I hate when pastors say the Greek says this or something, because... I feel like they're showing off, like I went to seminary and I took Greek you know and, and, and quite frankly, I believe you know if you can read the Bible in whatever language, English, whatever your native language is okay you 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 can the truths of the gospel are, are clear no matter what language the Bible's been faithfully uh, translated in, so you don't need Greek and you don't need Hebrew to. To get what the Bible says, however, there there are some benefits to, to learning Greek and Hebrew. There are certain things that don't obviously always come super clear through the text, and I think that's one and that's one of the things I want to try to highlight today. So I'm I'm going to be talking about some Greek, but I'm not trying to show off. I'm just trying to show there's a there's a theme throughout, okay? Because it's the same Greek word that keeps popping up, though it's translated differently in English, okay? And I'll explain why that. So I want us to see the first the first time this phrase partnership with the gospel explicitly and clearly comes up in Philippians 1 uh, 3 to 5. So Paul writes there, "I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now." Okay? So Paul expresses here that he's very thankful to the Philippian church precisely because of their partnership in the gospel, which began with uh, the very birth of the church itself back when Paul was on his second missionary journey, sometime around AD 50. Okay? Now, you can read about this in the book, uh, uh, the chapter Acts, chapter 16, where he talks about the, um, how the Philippian church starts. So, I'm going to give a little brief synopsis of that chapter. So, basically, it starts off at the beginning of the chapter that Paul, Silas, and Tim- Timothy are wandering around an area called uh, Asia Minor. Okay? So, I don't know how well this is going to come up, it doesn't come up super well. Um, So, Asia Minor is this area right here. It's what we call Turkey today, the modern-day country of Turkey, okay? And the beginning of Acts 16 says that every time they go to try to go somewhere to preach, the Bible specifically says, the Holy Spirit forbid them, which is an interesting phrase. So, every time they go to preach somewhere in Asia Minor, the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to preach here, you're not going to preach here. So, they start getting kind of frustrated. They don't really know what to do. And so, Paul has a vision, a dream, of a man over in Macedonia, over here across the sea what is what modern-day Greece. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Okay? So they take that to be the Holy Spirit saying, we're going to go to Macedonia and share the gospel. Okay? So they cross the Aegean Sea to do that. And the first place they, the first place they would go to, you can't see, it's not on here, but I feel like I'm here. I'll, I'll talk about uh, You can't really see, there's a place called Neapolis that's the first city they would have come to see a little bit better on this map. They would have come to Neopolis first, but it says that they didn't stay there, they went on to Philippi, which is the next city in. Okay? So why, why didn't they, you think, well, we're going to go to Macedonia to preach, why don't we just stop at the first city, this port city, and start preaching? Well, they don't. They, they For some reason, they, they go straight through Neapolis and go to Philippi. Now, why? Why did they think it was important to go to Philippi? Well, Philippi was a fairly important city in the Roman world. It had been founded by uh, Philip II, which you know This may be some boring history, but uh, this was actually the father of Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror. He's the man who actually founded this uh, city. It had been destroyed in around 42 B.C., okay, but it was rebuilt around 31 B.C. by Octavian the Emperor. And it had been given uh, a high state legal standing called uh, the Ias Italicum, or the Law of Italy, okay, which is basically a, a high, the highest privilege, legal privilege a Roman colony could have. Okay. So it was a fairly important city during Paul's time, Furthermore, it was also strategically placed. It was on the main road from Rome to the Middle East. So anybody traveling from Rome who wanted to go to, say, Jerusalem or anywhere in the Middle East would have gone through Philippi. Okay? So it was, it was a really strategic place, so Paul knew that, and so he and uh, Silas and Timothy decided to try to plant a church there. So Acts 16 goes on to tell us how this Philippian church started. So this was their strategy. They heard about a place where these Jewish believers were uh, uh, praying at a riverside. Okay, So they went to this riverside and their first converts there were women. And the only one that we're given the name of was a woman named Lydia. Okay, Now we're not really sure how long Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there in Philippi, but they were there long enough such that they were preaching regularly and were told this story that there's, a, there's this demon-possessed slave girl who's annoying Paul. Okay, He gets so annoyed eventually he, he, he casts the demon out of her. Okay? I don't know why he didn't do it beforehand, but he finally just got annoyed with her and cast the demon out. Now, we're told in the Bible that once the demon was cast out of her, her owners realized that she no longer had the ability to tell the future, she was a fortune teller. So somehow having this demon in her gave her this special ability to tell the future. Paul cast it out and they realized, there goes our cash cow, we were losing out. So they rile up the city against Paul and Silas, have them beat, thrown in jail, okay, and then Acts 16, picks, uh, verse 25 and 26, pick up the story. We're told that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Okay, we don't know where Timothy is. Uh, I don't know if he's high-tailed it or he's hiding out. Okay? But Paul and Silas had been beat, thrown in prison. And you think that'd be a, a rough spot. But look what they're doing. About midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and all, everyone's bonds were unfastened. So the story goes on to relate how the jailer and his whole household come to faith because of this miraculous event and how Paul and Silas reacted to it. So after being released, the next day we're told that Paul and Silas would visit Lydia, the other Philippian believers, and then go on to Thessalonica in uh, Acts 17. So even though Acts 16 relates Paul and Silas' time in Philippi is fairly short, probably was just a few weeks or months, okay, their time there profitably, profitably resulted in a church being planted. There was a thriving church by the time they left there. In fact, Timothy more likely stayed behind to help the church along for a while. Now, we know this congregation survived for quite a while because Philippians is probably written somewhere around 57 to 59 A.D. About seven to nine years later. So the church at Philippi was about the same age as North Point. We're about nine years old now. Um, So Paul is speaking from the perspective of several years of time in writing this letter. So Coming back to this phrase, though, what does this partnering in the gospel mean, okay, I think we can begin to get a fuller picture of what this looks like by seeing how the Greek root word okay, behind this word partnership is used in other places. Okay? So it appears as partnership in chapter 1, verse 5, as we saw, but it's also used in chapter 1, verse 7 okay, when Paul writes, uh, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel." Now it doesn't come across in the English, but the Greek, word, Greek root word that's translated partnership back in verse 5 is a similar Greek root word that's translated as partakers here in verse 7. Okay, So being in partnership in the gospel is similar, at least in Paul's mind, to being a partaker of grace in Paul's imprisonment. Now. What does that mean to be a partaker of grace in someone else's imprisonment? Okay. I don't, that's, that's probably even more obscure than what it means to be a partner in the gospel. The Philippian believers obviously weren't under house arrest with Paul in Rome. Okay? Otherwise, he wouldn't have been writing this letter, right? He's writing to them in Philippi. So it doesn't really help explain the phrase partnership in the gospel. Okay? Maybe it, there's another place that might help us. At the, toward the end of the letter, Paul writes in Philippians four fourteen and sixteen the following. He says, "Yet it was kind of you, you Philippians, to share my trouble. And the Philippians and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again." So Paul is here in chapter 4 commenting on how the Philippian believers had been encouraging him way back years ago when he had left them and gone to Thessalonica, okay, and here they were still encouraging him now that he was in a house arrest in Rome, okay, and it seems clear from the context that this help, this encouragement, okay, uh, expressed itself in very tangible ways, probably financial means, okay. And though it's completely undetectable in the English translation, the same Greek word, root word for partnership appears behind the word share, when he says, you share my troubles. It's the same Greek root word. So partnership in the gospel is tied to partaking of Paul's grace and imprisonment, which seems to be sharing in Paul's troubles, encouraging him, and meeting his needs. Which makes sense. If I'm, sharing, if I'm helping you out, or if, let's say I'm in trouble and someone's helping me out, One could say, well, they're sharing in my troubles, even though they personally aren't going through the trouble themselves. So I'm going through a really hard time, and you help me out. In a sense, you're also sharing my troubles. And so that seems to be Paul's idea here. So at the very least, partnership in the gospel includes the idea of helping others, especially other believers, with our resources, either by prayer, words of encouragement, and of course trying to actually meet physical needs. However, as we see elsewhere in Philippians, Partnership in the gospel seems to mean much more than just meeting Christian needs. So, so I don't want to uh, downplay this. I think partnering, partnering in the gospel means meeting people's needs. It means that, okay? But it means more than that, given the way Paul uses the same phrase elsewhere. So let's return to Philippians 1 again to see this, okay? So uh, back in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, the Philippian believers were partaking of grace with Paul not only in his imprisonment by encouraging him by meeting his needs, but look at what else he says, that also they were partaking of grace by also being part of the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Okay. Now, this probably means two complementary things, so I think it means two things that are both true. Okay. One, it seems Paul is encouraged by the fact that the Philippian believers are probably actually uh, sharing and defending the gospel in Philippi. So they're still a thriving church. They're still contending for the gospel. Okay? So he's encouraged by that in Rome. Okay? And it would be encouraging, okay, to if you were part of a church, you moved away and you heard the church is still doing well. Okay? So that's surely true. Okay? And it seems obvious that if the truths of the gospel okay, have penetrated our hearts, Christ has really saved us, we should be excited about the opportunity to talk about the gospel. What better way to partner in the gospel than to share the gospel? But I also think it might—it means something else. It also seems that by encouraging Paul in his imprisonment with financial help, with encouragement, with prayers, okay, they also, okay, um, were helping to contribute to Paul's confirmation and declaration of the gospel in Rome. Now I think this is an interesting point, and I think it's actually fairly important. Okay, Paul seems to be claiming here that the Philippine church, helping him in prison they were not only sharing in his troubles, okay, but they were also sharing in his defense and declaration of the gospel. Now, how is that so? Okay. Philippi and Rome, by the way, are several hundred miles apart. Remember, I, 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 I Google mapped this and tried to figure out the distance. It's about the same distance from here to Jacksonville, Florida. That's how far apart they were. Okay. So they're that far apart, and Paul claims, I'm here in Rome under house arrest, I'm sharing the gospel, and you Philippians are sharing in that. How exactly are they sharing in that? Well, here's why I think the deeper sense of this notion of partnership starts to come to the fore. In Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, Paul writes the following, So if there isn't any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. The Greek word translated participation here is, again, the same Greek root word for partnership. Here in Philippians 2.1, Paul notes that all believers participate in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Okay, which seems obviously true. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. This is why uh, the New Testament calls the body, a Christian bo- a human body, a Christian human body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I think Paul's reasoning... Uh, goes like the following, given this. He gives the Holy Spirit, okay, is God. He's not bound by time or space, okay. Uh, we all share, share in the Spirit. Okay? Each believer has the Spirit dwelling within him. So it seems to follow, according to Paul, that if one believer is experiencing something, it's shared by other believers. So it seems that when Paul says he's defending and confirming the gospel in Rome, the Philippian believers, way over in Philippi, are also defending and sh- and sharing the gospel in Rome as well. Okay, this is a f- fairly profound point. Okay, we uh, support a couple different missionaries here in our church budget. Okay, so Nissen Matthew Nissen and Joanna Matthews in Dubai they'll actually be here this summer. Uh, I think July fifth he's coming to preach. I mean, we help support them. Okay, we're not the only supporters of them, but we're, our church helps to support them. Okay, in a certain way, sense, okay, we're, we as a church here in the United States, in Columbus, Ohio, are helping to spread the gospel in Dubai, even though you and I aren't literally there. And more than just because we pray and we, uh, more than just because we give money, okay, it's also because the same Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that guides us, directs us, is the same Holy Spirit that's guiding and directing Nissen and Joanna in Dubai. Okay? So Paul saw this as a very, very tangible, direct connection. He says, you Philippian believers are also taking part in the confirmation and the defense of the gospel here in Rome. So there's a real solidarity, a real connection between all believers because, through the Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of the reasons for why in Philippians 2.2 2 there, he says his joy would be complete in Rome if the Philippians over in Philippi would be of the same mind and same love. Yeah. Now... Um, for those of you who are guests here, um, I just received my PhD last year in philosophy, and so someone who likes philosophy might say, this sounds like a bunch of philosophy, you you know, you sound like you're just kind of talking about the- theological, yeah, 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 you know, uh, maybe you're overreaching this, James, maybe it's just a metaphor, you know, uh, they're helping Paul, and Paul's just trying to make them feel good that they're also sharing the gospel, it's no deeper than that. I don't think so. I think this is actually a fairly profound point that Paul is trying to make. I think the implications of partnering in the gospel, something that we began when we came to Christ, I think the implications are very, very profound. And I think this can be seen elsewhere in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, okay, Paul says that he has suffered the loss of all things and counts them rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. In the beginning of chapter 3, Philippians, uh, Paul is comparing all of his earthly achievements, his, his, his lineage, all the things he had done, um, his education, everything that he could be proud of, he, he had achieved. He put that on one side ledger. He goes, here's all the stuff I've done, here's all the stuff I've achieved, and it's quite impressive for a Jew in first century uh, Palestine. He goes, I, I put that all over here, and then I put Jesus over here, okay? and Jesus far outweighs this stuff. And Paul's not saying that the stuff's not valuable at all, but he says in comparison to Christ, it's pretty, it's pretty worthless. It's like rubbish. It's the kind of stuff you throw away. Okay? So Paul saw all his earthly goods and all his earthly achievements in comparison to Christ as just not even comparable. Christ is that valuable. Okay? His relationship with Christ is that great. Okay? He then goes on to say much more in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I, he goes that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share, okay, there's that word again, same root word for partnership, that I may share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Okay. Now, I wouldn't presume to uh, be able to explain that I understand what Paul's completely talking about here. Uh, if I've had any sort of suffering for Christ, it's got to be pretty minimal Okay, if I've had any at all. So I wouldn't presume to say, I I understand what Paul's talking about here, but I think we get an idea of it. And it at least means this, Paul understood that his suffering for the gospel was connected with the very sufferings of Christ in some way. We talked about this in our shepherd group this past week, uh, we're going through 1 Peter, we talked about this notion of Paul there also talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings. And it's interesting, when Paul first came to faith, you know, you know the story in Acts. He's on the road to Damascus. He's, he's persecuting the church. He's on the road to Damascus to arrest and kill some more Christians. And that's where Christ comes to him in a bright vision, remember? And remember, Jesus, do you remember what Jesus first says to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? He said, why do you persecute me? Okay. So Paul understood this direct connection between God's church and Christ himself. So when Paul was suffering for the gospel, okay, Christ was suffering as well. Okay? He's sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So there's a very deep connection here that all believers have through the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been hopping through verses here, trying to give an overview of the book. Okay? Let me try to tie all this together at this point. Um, what do we do with all these different verses? That these different sort of parts. So let me try to connect it. Okay. So this Greek word, or this Greek root word, I keep referring to, has been translated as uh, partnership in chapter one, verse five; and chapter four, verse fifteen. Uh, it's been translated partaking in grace in chapter one, verse seven. It's translated participating in the spirit, chapter two, verse one. Sharing in Paul's trouble, chapter four, verse fifteen. And then lastly, sharing in Christ's suffering in chapter 3, verse 10. Okay. So like I said, these all come from the same Greek root word. Okay? And that word, I'm going to give it because you might be familiar, is a word called koinonia. How many of you have ever heard that word koinonia? Raise your hand. Okay, good. It's, it's a fairly common word in Christian circles we use. Okay? Does it, what do we, what is, what, have you heard what's normally the, the translation we give to koinonia? Does anybody know? Fellowship. Very good. Fellowship is usually the way we translate the word koinonia. Okay? And when we think about, think about how we use that in our church, we're going to have a fellowship. Okay? What does that mean? Okay. Well, it basically means we're going to have a party, right? But it sounds more spiritual to say we're going to have a fellowship. You okay? uh, can't just say, hey, we're going to go have fun. Okay? We're going to fellowship. Or you'll hear about Christians fellowshipping together, okay? Uh, they're not just hanging out, okay? They're fellowshipping, okay? Those that use of that word we've carried over into English is a way to try to capture this notion that we see in the New Testament. Now, I'm not I'm not making fun of it. I th- I think that's a real facet of it. Okay, Christians do have this bond of koinonia, this fellowship with each other. Okay, and I've tried to show throughout. I mean, par- Paul saw this partnering with the gospel, it's the same Greek root word as. Uh, uh, sharing in his troubles, helping him. There's this notion of closeness among Christians is connected with this. Okay, but I think it's incorrect. Okay, to think of the word koinonia simply as the idea of just getting together and having fun. Okay, I'm not saying we don't. We shouldn't use that word that way. Christians should. Okay, but it's more than that. Okay, and I think it's clear from the way Paul has used this word in different ways, and the way we've translated it in our English Bibles throughout. New Testament scholar D. A. Carson. I think captures this deeper sense of koinonia well, or fellowship, with the following quote. He says, Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, he says, but the heart of the matter, the heart of koinonia, is the shared vision of what is of transcendent importance. It's a vision that calls forth a commitment. So let me try to sum that up, Okay. I think Paul is saying that throughout Philippians, that partnering in the gospel refers to our first coming to Christ, becoming a part of the body of Christ, and fellowshipping with that body. As we see in this quote, Carson claims that Paul's notion of Christian fellowship is more than just hanging out together and enjoying each other's company, though it includes that. The notion of koinonia fellowship, a partnering in the gospel, a participation in the work of the Spirit, includes encouraging and helping other believers in need and sharing in the sufferings of other believers, and while doing so, in some deep way, we're also suffering with Christ. And we do this all because we're energized by the gospel of Christ in our words and in our actions. Okay? So the Philippian believers needed to be reminded, as all churches need to be reminded, about this reality, that their partnership that the, in the gospel that they began several years prior, or whenever they had come to Christ for each of us, should continue. Paul's encouraged them to recognize and participate in a reality that Christ has already begun within them by the Spirit. So by implication, this should be true of us as well, right? If Christ has saved us, which is only by the gospel, then we are also partakers in it. And we should continue to partner with other believers in a local gospel-believing preaching church seeking to extend the love and mercy of gospel to others. I think that's ultimately what it means to partnership in the gospel. Okay? But Paul does more than just uh, encourage the Philippine believers to continue to partner in the gospel. He actually goes on to help them see exactly how they should be participating and sharing in the gospel, which I think makes up the other half of the theme of this book. I think Paul is claiming that we must continue to partner in the gospel by walking worthy of the gospel. Partner in the gospel, have a partnership in the gospel by walking worthy of the gospel. And we can see this in Philippians chapter 1 uh, verse 27. Paul writes there, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I think that ending phrase, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, is another way of saying a partnership in the gospel. But this verse gives us some understanding of what it means, particularly to partner in the gospel. And that is we need to have a life, live a life, walk a life worthy of the gospel. The phrase, be worthy, okay, here, this is my last Greek uh, word business. Okay. The, word, the phrase be worthy here in our English Bible is a Greek translation of a single Greek word that can also be translated the following, okay? you can translate it either way, it doesn't, it doesn't lose its meaning. You can also translate the, word, the phrase be worthy as the following, only behave as citizens that are worthy, only behave as citizens that are worthy. Okay? So another way to translate Philippians 27 would be the following, uh, the Philippian believers should only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, that's an interesting phrase, I think, given that Paul reminds them in Philippians 3.20 that their citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Okay? Um, being a Roman colony with special status, Philippi probably prided itself on being a part of this Roman heritage and privilege. Paul might be insinuating here that the Philippians needed to be reminded that they should be looking primarily to Christ, not to their Roman heritage, their American heritage, or whatever, Okay, as their a uh, main source of identity. Okay. And their model of their behavior should model that, not necessarily what Roman behavior was the, um, uh, the standard. So, in essence, I think Paul is saying that a life worthy of the gospel is a life that's lived with values that represent the gospel of Christ. In Lee's past two sermons on Colossians, he highlighted various characteristics that, the, that Paul lists in Colossians, that, that the Colossian church should have okay, and I think this should be true of all gospel-believing churches. In the letter to Colossian church, these these characteristics include. I'm not going to give the whole list, but here's some of the ones that Lee listed uh, in his sermon uh, and what Paul lists. A, a church should be merciful. Churches should be kind. They should be gentle. They should be patient. They should be long-suffering, faithful, and I like this phrase. Uh, the way a leeward is, they should be postured toward forgiveness, I did ready to forgive, not just forgiving, but ready to forgive, eager to love. Okay? And we could mention more of the fruits of the Spirit. There's, there's all kinds of things that go with the, these sort of characteristics, right? So Paul's exhortation that we walk worthy of the gospel here in, the, in Philippians, I think, includes many of those same ideas. To walk worthy of the gospel is to exhibit love and gentleness, a posture towards forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, patience, all those things. And surely these things should characterize any Christians living in community together. So that should be true of our church. No, no church is going to be perfect. Obviously, we're still all sinners in need of grace. Okay, But the overall character of a church should be these sort of characteristics coming through. And walking worthy of the gospel seems to be this idea. However, it seems clear that there are at least two characteristics that Paul emphasizes that suggest the Philippian church may have been falling short in this. Okay? So you might think Colossae must have been a really messed up church for Paul to have to go through that whole litany. There's only a couple things that, that Paul seems to have to highlight about Philippi, so maybe they're in a little bit better shape. That, that's reading it, we don't know. But it's clear that there's at least two things they seem to be struggling with. So, One, it seems that Paul emphasizes in Philippians 1.27 okay, the need for unity. Note that he, he says he wants to hear that the Philippian believers are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This emphasis upon being of one mind and standing firm in one spirit suggests they may have been struggling with unity, okay? Uh, A few verses later, he says almost exactly the same thing, urging the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 2, that they would complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, okay? See, same sort of language, you know, get your act together sort of language, okay? So here's a direct reference in Philippians. There's even a direct reference in Philippians to an actual lack of unity. Okay, in Philippians chapter four, verse two and three, whoop, I'm, I'm a behind one. There we go. In Philippians chapter four, verse two and three, Paul says, "I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord." Okay, he goes, "Yes, I see you also. Uh, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel." So, Yodia and Sintica were obviously church members, two women who were obviously disagreeing sharply about something, so much so that it seems to have been leading to disunity within the church. So, Paul is urging here that these two women and the rest of the church, to get these women to agree in the Lord. Okay, That's, a, I think, a very interesting phrase. I don't think it means that whatever your disagreement, I'll just forget it. Okay, The point is, that don't let the disagreement be such a source of problems. I had a, a professor, a New Testament professor, his kids were teenagers at the time, and he told us that they have a rule in their house that their teenagers are allowed to disagree with mom and dad. They just can't do it disagreeably, which I took to mean they can disagree, just don't be smart aleck, be respectful. You know, still recognize that we're your mom and dad, but you can disagree. Okay, and I think Paul's saying something similar here. It's like, look, you can disagree with each other. We're not always going to see eye to eye. Okay, and that's true in any church. You're know, like, I can't believe they raise their kids that way. I can't believe, you know, they bought a new car again, there's all kinds of things in churches that we can get frustrated with other people, right? Real and not so real, okay? But these things shouldn't lead to disunity, okay? In light of our prior discussion, it seems clear that one cannot be in partnership in the gospel if there is disunity, okay? We can't be working together for the gospel if we're fighting over especially things that aren't of any sort of significance. So, note how here in Philippians 4-3, Paul appeals to the fact that the Philippian church is his true companion and that Euodia and Syntyche labored side by side with him in the gospel. Paul was not giving some rah-rah, go team go sort of message here or, hey guys, let's just all get along. No, Paul is appealing to the reality of what Christ has already done for them in the gospel in order for them to see that there should be no disunity within within the body. The idea is like, hey, we need to get our act together. Let's get unified first, and then we can be about the gospel. Paul says it's actually the opposite. You need to recognize you are about the gospel, and this shouldn't be true of you. So act the way that you actually are made to be. The partnering of the gospel comes first before the walking worthy. So I believe this is also why Paul seems to emphasize uh, the notion of humility as being a facet of living worthy of the gospel, which seems to be another thing maybe this church was struggling with. Right after encouraging the Philippian church to be unified in Philippians 2-3, Paul says in uh, verse 3, "...do nothing from rivalry or self or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." He then goes on in the immediately following verses for most of chapter 2 to give examples of humility, primarily focusing upon Christ's own humility, and if you, if you read those verses an interesting progression. He talks about Christ's divinity taking on humanity, it's a form of humility. Christ's humanity taking on servanthood, it's another form of humility, and then his servanthood taking on death for us. Okay? So in other words, Christ is the perfect example of humility. Okay? Which should be an obvious implication. For Christ, who's been highly exalted by God the Father, deserves our highest praise both now and forevermore. This Christ gave us the perfect example of humility. Therefore, if Christ, who is beyond all everyone else in creation, deserves who deserves not to be humbled, nevertheless showed humility and did so perfectly, then we obviously should be humble as well. There's no place for pride within uh, the Christian church. Uh, one of my favorite authors and um, speakers is Mark Dever. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's the president of Nine Marks Ministry. And I always love when I'm 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 thinking a thought and I read someone smarter than me who says the same thing. I'm like, yes. It means I'm on to something. Okay? And so I was thinking about this. It seems like humility and, um, and unity seem to be two issues, seem to be coming up in P- uh, P- Paul's letter here. And guess, guess what Dever says. So here's a quote from Dever, um, uh, his book. I, I, I'll summarize it with a slide. He says the following okay, about Philippians. He says, he says, Paul gives two tests for the authenticity of the Philippians' profession of faith. I think it's just another way of saying their partnership, and a test to show whether they're truly partnering in the gospel or not. And he says those two tests are unity and humility. He says, are they united? Are they humble? Paul knows that they cannot be united if they are not humble. Any unity manufactured apart from humility is a fraud. True Christian unity is rooted in our humility before Christ, in our awareness of our need, and in the fact that he meets that need fully and faithfully. End quote. So I summarize it up by saying, walking worthy of the gospel, at least for the Philippians, includes the notions of humility. And unity. Okay. Now again, I think also includes being loving, being kind, being gracious. Okay, all the things that we normally associate with the fruits of the spirit and being Christ-like. But it's clear that those these were at least two issues that the Philippian church was struggling with. Okay, and Paul's starting to remind him, Look, you're partners in the gospel. Okay, so you need to walk worthy of it. Okay, you need to be unified. You need to be humble. So I think it's important to emphasize this point, because um, I think that's exactly what Paul is urging throughout most of the letter. Just as with Paul's exhortation for unity in the church, Paul's exhortation for humility in the church is not a push to give them, to get them to get their act together, in order that they may partner in the gospel. No, Paul is appealing to Christ, who he is, and what he's done for them in the gospel, in order for them to see that there should be humility as well as unity characterized within the body. Okay? If you if we think, oh, we need to get our act together first. We need to be more loving. We need to, there's all these things we need to do, and then we can be serious about the gospel. That's completely backwards. Paul says, look, you have to be rooted in the gospel. Then these things, I use the word naturally, of course it's supernatural, these things naturally come with that. Humility, okay. unity, love, graciousness, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, a towards forgiveness. We can't cook those things up, okay? Now you can for a while, okay, we can act happy, we can act peaceful, okay? we can put on a facade for a while, but what, what do you think is going to happen when the first big bad thing comes along? The first time someone loses their job or finds out they have cancer or lose a child? Okay? That facade is going to break really quick. Because even though it looks like we're walking worthy of the gospel, we're not rooted, we're not partnered in it. Okay? So Paul's trying to remind the Philippians, look, remember who you were. You need to partner in the gospel. You're participating in the spirit. You've been saved. You've been made new. Okay? And these things, because that's true, these things should be true of you as well. Okay? That's the source for why you should be unified and why you should be humble. So I think this is an incredibly important point for the overall message of Philippians. You and I, by our limited and sinful selves... Can't, don't, we just don't have the resources to keep this thing going called the church. Well, we might keep a group of to people together, and it might have a religious facade, okay? but it won't be a church. We have to be rooted in a partnership in the gospel. We must be rooted in a message that brought us hope and new life in Christ in order to be a true church, in order to be a community of people that exhibit, among other things, true humility and unity. We must rest in the truths of the gospel. Um, I think in a church like a church like ours, one might get tired of hearing about the gospel. Okay, we talk about that quite a bit here. You might think, why don't we have sermons like the following? And I, I've gone to churches like, that have sermons like this. Two strategies for being a successful church. Five ways to have a wonderful marriage. Have you ever heard sermon titles like this? I mean, I, I grew up hearing sermons like this. There, there are plenty of churches that do that sort of thing all the time. Okay, and don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, Biblical sermons should be calling us to concrete actions, okay? This isn't, this isn't, a, this isn't, a, this isn't a university class, uh, this is a church. Uh, we're not professors, we're supposed to be shepherds. Um, we're supposed to be calling us to repentance and to follow Christ, okay? Um, but we need to understand that the only way, way we have power to do those things, to have successful marriages, be good parents, to be good, great churches, the only way we have power to do those things is by being rooted in the gospel. Okay? That's why it's so important to emphasize the gospel. Now, I suppose we can go too far the other way. We can talk about the gospel all the time and never tell anybody what to do. That would be the other extreme, okay? But I think most evangelical churches struggle with the first, okay? So we cannot walk worthy of the gospel unless we're in partnership with gospel. In other words, we cannot truly live the Christian life unless we're rooted in Christ and what he has done for us at the cross. So let me end by giving some practical suggestions. So, One, just as I emphasize, I think we must continue to part in the gospel by resting in the truths of the gospel. In chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippians to watch out for those dogs. That's his actual phrase. It's obviously a reference to false teachers. He says those false teachers, their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Commenting on this passage, Mark Dever says, These false teachers' confidence rested in their power to achieve and not in God's promise to give. Which means as Christians... It's the opposite. We should be resting in God's power to give rather than resting in our own achievements, okay? I mean, God, uh, by His grace, has snatched you and me off the endless treadmill of self-achievement, and now we can rest in the achievement of what Christ has done at the cross. But the promises of God's goodness in the gospel have to continue to sink down in our souls. If they don't, we're going to continually be tempted to go back to that treadmill, okay? It's because I read so many verses today it's because I go to church every week. You know, whatever, it's because I voted Republican. Whatever you put as the sort of, you know, the sort of treadmarks, what you think makes you worthwhile, okay, is a constant temptation. Okay? So, but we have to remember, constantly be reminded of the gospel, how the truths of the gospel take us away from that. Uh, in a nutshell, we have to continually put the gospel before this. So we need to read the Bible regularly. We should memorize Bible verses and meditate on them. We should listen to music. It doesn't necessarily have to be all the time, but at least listen to music that celebrates the truths of the gospel. We don't do these things in order to win God's acceptance. We do these things in order to remind ourselves of how we are already accepted in Christ. As that becomes more and more true of us, I think being a part in the gospel becomes more and more reality. Okay? That is, we begin to seek to live these truths out. Okay? Which I think brings me to a second practical suggestion. In the same way that we've been shown mercy and grace in the gospel, we should seek to extend it to others. Uh, As John Piper puts it, quote, "...love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others." Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. This is why Paul emphasized the Philippian church meeting his needs was a sign of their partnership in the gospel. Helping to shoulder his burdens was showing that they had experienced the truth of, of Christ. Uh, Lee often says this phrase, um, keep your antenna up. Okay. I don't know what you, I always think of like ant antennas. I think he's thinking more like a radio antenna, but whatever, you get the idea. Keep your antenna up. You, know, you need to be aware of people around you. Okay? If there's people hurting, try to reach out to them. If there's people new, uh, try to say hi to them. Okay? So he's trying to emphasize that we need to be about the business of looking after other people's needs. It's just a catchy phrase to capture that. So it's, it's very easy to come here week after week to do our thing, okay, and just go home, okay? We could, it's obviously a lot easier to live in a sort of a, a cocoon, a little womb of anonymity, where you don't get involved with in people's lives. Look, they do their thing, I do mine, never the two shall meet, or ships passing in the night, whatever romantic phrase you want to use, but I don't get involved with in people's lives and they don't get involved with me, okay? That's, that's a safe way to go because when you do get involved in people's lives, it gets messy and complicated, right? But when you do cut yourself off from being involved in people's lives, you also cut yourself off from a great source of joy. Okay? Some writers have claimed that the main message of Philippians is joy. Have you heard that? Because the word joy or rejoice occurs something like 15 or 16 times throughout the small letter. It occurs more times in this book than anywhere else in the Bible, the notion of joy or rejoice. Okay? But I don't think joy is the main theme of Philippians. I think joy is the main result of partnering with the gospel. Okay? Paul's joyful and encouraging them to be joyful because of what Christ has done for them. A life committed to living in koinonia fellowship with other believers, which means not just coming in and singing a few songs and going home, it means actually being involved with people's lives. Okay? Uh, that's a path to great joy. We seek to share in other people's lives, including their hurts, because this is part of the path of joy in Christ. So we should purposely try to be involved with other people's lives. Now, you have to balance this with everything else. You should be purposely involved with your family's life, obviously, first and foremost. Okay? But it, it, we should try to do this. We, for instance, so one practical way to do this is if you're not involved with a shepherd group here, you should try to be involved with a shepherd group if, if that can work in your schedule. You should try to invite another family to your house for dinner or lunch or just coffee or tea. We, the point is that we can't extend the mercy that Christ has given us if we're not involved in other people's lives. Okay? So we need to try to do that. There's a lot of other things I can say, but let me say uh, just one last practical suggestion. And this is sort of just an application of the second one. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't explicitly mention that the giving of our resources is a form of walking worthy in the gospel, and especially giving financial resources, but all kinds of ways. Those of you who, who greet, uh, serve in children's church, nursery, uh, help put up this junk. By the way, uh, school's over here, so we don't have to put stuff up this week. Yay! Let's, uh, everybody clap. Um <laughs> Uh, so, any, any way that you serve is a way of giving of your resources, but obviously giving of your finances is a way to do that too. Uh, this is a way we show, Christ has shown love for us, and so we want to extend that love to others. So we should seek to give of our resources, especially to those who've committed their lives to a vocation of spreading the gospel. Okay. This is what, seems to be one of the main reasons that the Philippians were so invested in Paul as well. Now, there's much more that could be said, so let me just close with the following. As a church, we're about being in partnership in the gospel. To do that, we have to do we do that by walking worthy of the gospel, but, which just means because God has so richly blessed us in Christ, both as individuals and as a church family, we seek to richly bless others. So may God make this true of all of us. Let's pray. God in heaven, I'm so thankful.